I'd like to add my welcome to those that you've received this morning. Um, the certain things that I associate with Christmas, certain things that I want to experience each year. Uh, I loved the weather yesterday, but I am ready for a cold snap. <laughs> I'm ready for that wood fire in the fireplace. I want to smell some pine. This morning, I had pumpkin pie for breakfast. <laughs> and I don't think it's just me. There are certain things that we all associate with Christmas. And we're going to talk about those things over the next few, few weeks and why they have such a hold on us. So we're going to talk about some of the things that we hold most near and dear. We're going to talk about a white Christmas. We're going to talk about good cheer. We're going to talk about the big family gathering. We're going to talk about the visit from St. Nicholas. And today we're going to talk about presents under the tree. So each of these things has a hold on us. And why is that? That's what we're going to talk about. I think it's because each of these things has something that is something that's near and dear to our hearts. And one of those things is certainly presence under the tree. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Think back to a memorable Christmas present. Could be something you gave, could be something that you received, it could be something that you gave last year or 50 years ago. What is a memorable Christmas present? Okay, you got it? All right, so I want you to turn to somebody that you don't know, greet them, and tell them your name and what was that memorable Christmas present. Okay, ready? Up. I think that we can hardly think of traditional Christmas without thinking of those Christmas presents. They're such an important part of the season, and it may take you a minute, I suppose, to think of what that memorable Christmas present might be, but almost all of us have one or more that come to mind. And so we're going to talk this morning about Christmas presents. We're going to look at a passage together in the Gospel of Matthew, very familiar passage, in which we see the first Christmas presents. So let's read Matthew together. Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. 
On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you please this morning to speak through this passage. There is wisdom here. There is grace here. And we ask that you would please help us to see you this morning. Amen. This morning we're going to look at three questions together. First, how do we receive the gift of Christmas well? Secondly, we'll talk about how do we give the gifts of Christmas well? And finally, why do we place such expectations on presents under the tree? So let's dive in. We'll talk about Matthew. How do we receive the gift of Christmas well? Well, at first glance, it may appear that the easiest thing in the world to do is to receive gifts. Anybody can do it, right? But really, that's not true. It's not so easy as it first appears, and Matthew's account gives us some ideas why this is so. At the center of Matthew's story is the child Jesus. The eternal, invisible God entered the womb of a virgin where his human body grew for nine months. Now, for centuries, Israel had expected a Messiah. So the question is, can this child be the one? Can this child be the Messiah of Israel? If so, he is the gift of God, to the nation of Israel, and indeed to all of the world. So how will this gift be received? So we read about some of the people in the story. First, we read Matthew tells us that this took place during the time of King Herod. Who was King Herod? Well, we know something of Herod from this account, but we also know about Herod from a Jewish historian named Josephus who lived about a century, excuse me, about a a generation after Jesus. We know that Herod was famous for his construction projects. He was a military leader, but we know most about Herod. We see him as a skilled political survivor. He had reigned for 30 years by his cunning. Herod was king of Israel by the power of Rome, which had conquered Israel. Early in his career, Herod backed Anthony and Cleopatra in the struggle against Octavius. And as the power shifted, Herod shifted. And he backed Octavius, who became Caesar Augustus. And to each of these people, in turn, to whom he owed his office, he gave huge sums sums of money. Herod was a man who was concerned most of all with building and maintaining his own kingdom. Now, in his domain, in this kingdom, appeared the Magi. Who were the Magi? 
Well, the first thing that may occur to you is that song about the three kings. Well, forget that. (laughs) We don't know how many there were. And the Magi were not kings. They were counselors to kings. They followed the stars and came from the east. So we think it's likely that they came from Persia, where there was commonly practiced a religion that was based on observation of the stars. Now, if the Magi had come from Persia, they had traveled over a 1,000 miles. And they'd done that, think about it, by donkeys or camels or just by walking. It's about the equivalent of walking to New York. Then there's a third group of people, and we are only briefly introduced to them. We're told that Herod was disturbed. Not only was Herod disturbed, but all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. The people in the capital city were under the influence of Herod. And so they missed the birth of the Messiah. And then finally, we are introduced to the chief priests and teachers of the law. These were Herod's advisors, but they also knew the scriptures. And Herod called these men together and asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And they quoted a prophecy, Micah 5.2. And you can read it in your Old Testament. You can see this for yourself. But there is something really strange about their answer. You see, they knew where the Christ was to be born. They had the right answer, but they did nothing about it. The distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is only about six miles. It's two hours' walk. But they missed it. This was the most important event of their lifetime. It was something that the nation of Israel had looked forward to for centuries. They were asked about it, and they still missed it. How could that be? Well, we're not told exactly, but we know that the adult Jesus had some things to say about the chief priests, and he said that they were overly concerned with the details of performing their religious duties, and they had a tendency to miss the big picture of God's grace. The priests can perhaps be best described as the distracted busy. So who receives Christmas well? Well, there's only one group who does that, and that's the Magi. And in some ways, they were the least likely. They were the least likely to understand what it is that they were seeing. They didn't have the scriptures as far as we know. They didn't know the Micah prophecy. In Jewish terms, they were pagans. But even though they didn't know everything, they acted on what they knew. So they left their home and their work and their families, and they went on a long, perilous journey through lands that they did not know so that they could spend time in the presence of God. What does it mean to receive the gift of Christmas well? Well, I have a friend who for many years in his youth struggled with depression. And then he got better. And I asked him once what made the difference. This is what he said. He said when he was a child growing up, he knew the verse that many of us know that says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. And he said, I knew the first part of that verse, for God so loved the world. But he said, I never understood for many years that God loves me. Not just the world. He does that. But he loves 
me, just me. And after he understood that, he knew that God's love was individual and personal. And he said, well, now when I get into difficulties, I can go out, I find a, a bench or someplace to sit in the sun, and I sit in the presence of God, and I think about how God loves me, just me. So what does it mean to receive God well, to receive the gift of Christmas well? Well, I think the Magi tell us, and my friend tells us, you don't have to know everything, but act on what you know. Take time away from the influence of others. Lose the distractions. And spend time in the presence of God to know how much he loves you. Just you. All right, so the second question we asked was this. How do we give the gifts of Christmas well? And here we see the consequences of receiving the gift of Christmas well. We see those worked out. So let's go back to our people. So what about those anxious influence, those people who are under Herod's power? They didn't give well. They had nothing to celebrate. How about those chief priests and teachers of the law? They were too busy taking care of their duties to give well. The most pitiful and terrible case is Herod. Herod can be characterized as being so anxious to maintain his kingdom that he could never give anything to anyone except for that purpose. Herod married ten women, and he had a whole lot of children. And that might make him sound very domestic, right? Except that he was always afraid that his wives and his children were plotting against him to take the throne. And so he had a number of his wives and his children executed. He committed terrible atrocities against the Jews because he always saw plots. And they hated him. And it was so bad, in fact, that at the end of his life, he contracted a, a wasting disease that was terribly painful. And he knew that there would be no mourning for him when he died. So he gave orders that a bunch of men be, uh, of the Jewish men be taken to a stadium and that when he died, they should be executed so that there would be mourning in Israel upon the death of Herod. Fortunately, his order wasn't followed. When men and women work only to build and maintain their own kingdoms, the legacy that they leave behind is almost always a miserable one. And that leaves us with one group, of course. It's the Magi. The Magi gave well. How they gave. There are three things that we can say about the Magi. First, we can say that they gave out of their joy. You remember when we read the scripture a little while ago? It says that when they followed the star and came to the house, they were overjoyed. So they gave out of their joy. Secondly, they gave generously. They gave gifts of significance. So they gave gold. Gold is a gift that is appropriate for a king. And Jesus was the rightful king of Israel and the rightful king of the world. Secondly, they gave incense. Incense was used in temple worship. And so the incense that they gave was appropriate for a priest. A priest, of course, in the time of Jesus, offered the sacrifice for the people. Jesus not only offered the sacrifice... He was the sacrifice. 
And the third gift that they gave was myrrh. Myrrh is used in embalming. So myrrh is appropriate for one who is to die. And Jesus is the one whose death is sufficient for you and me and for the Magi. So the Magi gave generously. And we don't know. Did they understand the significance of their gifts? Perhaps not. But their gifts were still significant for the one who was king and priest and one who dies on our behalf. And then third, the Magi gave to one who was unlikely ever to repay them. Think about that for a moment. They arrive at this scene and they see a child, a toddler. This is a king, but he has no court. He has no fortress, no seal, no banner, no army. This child is a priest, but he has no synagogue, no temple, no congregation. This is one who is to die, but this is a child and he has every sign of life. He's not going to die soon. And if he does, his death seems to have no special significance. And yet the Magi gave. Contrast the way that they gave with Herod's giving. Herod gave only to the Caesar and to Anthony and Cleopatra, people who could repay him. People who bear the name of Christ ought to be people who give to those who are unlikely ever to repay us. This is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. And we're just going to look at one passage this morning where Jesus talks about this. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So what's the logic here? Go back one slide if you can. Jesus says this. In the middle of telling us how we should give, he, Jesus says, He, that is God, God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God causes His Son to rise on the evil. Have you ever thought about that? God loves people who are evil, and He demonstrates by sending the Son to shine on them. He says that He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God doesn't care if the farmer whose crops need watering is a righteous man or an unrighteous man. He sends the rain on those crops anyway. So God shows his love for us when we were still evil, when we were still unrighteous people. And if God loves people that way, we should, because that's what he says it means to be a son of your Father in heaven. So if I only give to those people who can repay me, what's the difference between me and Herod? What's the difference between me and a pagan or a tax collector? Christians should give to those people who are unlikely ever to repay us. So let me ask you, how do you give? Do you give well? Do you give out of joy? Do you give generously? Do you give to people who cannot repay you? In a little while this morning, there'll be an opportunity to, to give to some people 
in Kirkwood who could use our help and who will never repay us. So you'll have an opportunity during this Christmas season, at least one, to give like the Magi. So that brings us to the third question. The third question is this. Why do we put such expectations on presents under the tree? After all, Christmas can disappoint. There are times when we look at Christmas and our hopes and expectations and we look at our own families and we say, wow, there is such a gulf between my family and the ideal family. There is such a gulf between the ideal Christmas and my Christmas. And that's what I think Jen was feeling earlier this morning when she talked a little bit about her own family situation. Some of you experienced that, perhaps now, perhaps in your youth. But even in families that enjoy Christmas well, I think that there is secretly in each one of us a moment after all of the presents have been opened, after all the children have received all that they can possibly receive, after all the boxes are scattered, all the ribbons are undone, all the paper is all over the floor, when we say to ourselves, never out loud, when we say to ourselves, is that all? (laughs) Is that it? I was hoping for more. Friends, Christmas presents, wonderful as they may be, will never fully satisfy us. We are made to be satisfied in something more. I believe that every one of us has a desire to be perfectly honored, perfectly loved, perfectly cherished, and to honor and love and cherish perfectly the people around us. And we think, maybe this will be the year. Maybe this will be the year that I'm perfectly satisfied. And I'll just tell you, it won't ever happen through an earthly Christmas celebration. Think back again for just a moment to the way that the Magi saw the Christ child. This child displayed no power. This child didn't preach or teach or suspend natural law to heal or to work miracles. And yet the Magi saw this child as if they were men seeing through the eyes of God. And so they honored him. For those of us who are in Christ, we have the assurance that God sees us as worthy of honor. For believers, there will come a day when we are told, we're promised in the Scriptures, that God will live with us, that we will have a place in our Father's house where there are many rooms, that we will eat and drink at the Father's table and we will inherit a crown of life. I think these are the things that we truly long for and presents under the tree are just the faintest shadow of what we'll enjoy in that life to come. So why do we place such expectations on presents under the tree? I think it's because we have a deep yearning to be loved and honored which only God can satisfy. I want to close this morning by taking you with me to see a painting. It's in Florence, Italy. Susan and I went to the Uffizi Gallery some years ago, and there's a one room of Botticelli's. You'll see the painting up here, and you can, it's also in your bulletin. And it's stuck in my mind. It's by a guy named Botticelli, if I haven't said that. And... I liked it very much for several reasons. Um, 
First of all, I want to talk about some of the people who are in this picture. In the very middle, of course, is the Christ child. And gathered around, we, we are coming up a rise perhaps on this scene ourselves. And there are some people of Florence from this time who are included in the picture. First of all, up here on the right, back in the back, that's a guy named Del Lama. And he's looking out at us. He's, he's got uh, white hair and a blue robe. And he is a man who started life with nothing. And he is now wealthy. But he has no religious or social standing. So how do you get that? Well, basically, you commission a painting. He's the man who paid Botticelli to paint this painting. And he is, most of the people are looking at the Christ child, but he's looking out at us. Now, why would that be? He's, he's commissioned not only the painting, but the chapel that the painting is going to go into because he wants to be somebody. And he looks at us because as we walk down the streets of Florence, he wants us to know who he is. He is a man of refinement. He is a man of taste. He is a man who is willing to do your next business deal. So come and sign up with him. It doesn't end well for Del Lama. He's wealthy at this point, but one of his bad business deals eventually takes him under and he vanishes into obscurity. Well, there are some people that you want to do business with in Florence. And uh, among those people are, you may know from your Renaissance history, the Medici family. The Medici family, they are, if we can go to the big picture again for just a minute, the Medici family are the wealthiest and, of course, the wisest people in Florence. So who do you think are the three Magi? Down here, Cosimo and Piero and Lorenzo de' Medici. And they're showing their devotion to Christ. But not everyone in this picture is showing devotion. Here's a group that I like. Go back for just a minute. Oh, that's, that's good. So down here on the, on the lower left, there are three young men. And they're looking at this scene. And I like the guy in the red tunic the best. His friend's whispering in his ear. He's got his horse. He's ready to ride. And he's mulling the whole scene over and thinking, what am I going to do? I got places to be. I got options. I got the red tunic. I got the sword. What will I do? Over here, this is our friend Botticelli. The painter has painted himself into the picture. And as we come upon the scene, he seems to say to us, what will you do with this scene? What will you do with the Christ? In every age, in every place, in every time, there are people like Herod or Del Lama who are building their own kingdoms. Are you like that? Let me tell you that it doesn't usually end well. It didn't for Herod, it didn't for Del Lama. What will you do with the Christ? In every age and every time, there are people who have options. The busy, distracted, the anxious, the easily influenced people who have places to go, things to do. And they're deciding, where will I do, what will I do? Will I spend more time in the presence of Christ or will I be on my way? What about those busy, distracted, and anxious, influenced? Or, Botticelli says, will you be one of those wise men, wise women, who spends time in the presence of Christ to know how much God loves you? Let's pray.